Hey everyone, I'm Dan Cortler, the host of TED Climate. Each episode, we unpack the problems and solutions of climate change. This season of the show, we're getting into some big ideas that make us optimistic about the future, like meat grown from cells and leather made from mushrooms. And the best part? We look at how building a greener future can be an upgrade instead of a sacrifice. Find and follow TED Climate wherever you're listening to this. This is a CBC Podcast. Hey, it's Laura Lynch. Welcome to What on Earth, where we bring you a world of climate solutions. And as we turn the page on 2023, we're returning to what's become a bit of a tradition here. It's our updates episode. Some stories and people just kind of stick with us and they leave us and maybe you wondering what happened next. So in the next hour, we're reconnecting with some of our guests to find out what they have planned for 2024. From a teacher whose pilot course on climate change is taking off in a big way, to a First Nation woman who's struggling to get home months after a flood damaged her house. And we're wrapping up 2023 with five climate wins. You'll want to stick around for that. We'll start by checking in with someone I spoke to nearly a year ago who's been entrusted with a big task. My name's Augie Jones. I am a principal at Nova Scotia Community College, and I'm also um, the chair of the Provincial Environmental Racism Panel. The province of Nova Scotia had asked Augie to put together that panel to explore how marginalized communities are disproportionately affected by toxic pollution and other environmental dangers, and to recommend solutions. The panel is just about to deliver its findings to the province. And as climate change gets worse, these questions are ever more urgent. In fact, since we last spoke to Augie, Nova Scotia experienced its worst wildfire season on record. An area close to where I live, I live in Bedford, Nova Scotia, so the forest fires would have been in the Tantal and Hammonds Plains area, so uh, probably a five-minute drive from my house. So yeah, there were there were people very close by who um, lost their homes completely. Wow, and then and then it kind of came home to you because you lost some things that are precious to you during the floods. Tell me what happened. <laughs> right after the forest fires, it might have been a couple of weeks later, we had this historic rainfall within like 24 hours. This biblical amount of rain fell, and and on the Friday night of the storm, my sister phoned me about 10 o'clock at night and sent me a picture of her basement flooded. She's in the next town over in Sackville. And I was like, oh, that's not going to happen to me. We haven't had a drop of water. We lived here three and a half years, no water. Anyway, I went to bed and at five o'clock in the morning, I just had this inkling, went downstairs and waist deep water in my basement. So I have a DJing system which specializes in vinyl, all my vinyl milk crates underwater. Oh, Augie, I'm really sorry. I mean, the vinyl's unaffected, but my covers look like ripple chips. You know, I, I do Jamaican music, uh, old school reggae music. So it's some really older albums like original Bob Marley, Peter Tosh, etc. So I have done a gig since. Some of my gear I had to replace, including electronic gear. But again, in the whole scheme of things, when some people lose their homes, I feel blessed in that way. But I was honestly surprisingly devastated by the flood. Like it took me a couple days to go down and deal with the mud and the loss and the cleaning out and just it was an emotional thing over probably took me two weeks to clean out the basement. I'm really sorry about that.
fires, and floods. Science shows that climate change is causing more extreme rainfall, which can increase the risk of flooding for communities. And hot and dry weather is becoming more common because of global warming, which means conditions that fuel wildfires. And these hazards can have an outsized impact on communities that have already been disproportionately exposed to pollution and contamination. And in fact, we'll be checking in with someone else who's been out of her home for months because of wildfires and flooding a little later on in the show. But first, I asked Augie Jones to remind us of some of the historical cases of environmental racism that he and his panel looked at. Yeah, I mean, there's um, the documentary, There's Something in the Water, written by Ingrid Waldron and produced by Elliot Page. A lot of people know those two incidences in particular, which would be the city of Shelburne and a black community that had uh, a dump in their area, a toxic dump that had been there for decades. We actually talked to one of the residents presented to the panel. And then also with uh, Pictou Landing First Nation in the body of water near Boat Harbor, there's a pulp and paper mill that was established decades ago again and was slowly polluting the water, polluting the water, Uh, Picto First Nation protested against it. Uh, We're just remeeting a lot of barriers. And so framing environmental racism as toxicity in certain communities, usually marginalized communities, that when they speak up about the sickness that's being, you know, happening in their community, etc., it falls upon deaf ears. And environmental racism is not new, but framing it that way, Dr. Ingrid Waldron has been, who's now at McMaster, has been at the forefront of that. Yeah, and we've spoken to her as well. Um, how does climate change fit into the picture of environmental racism in Nova Scotia? Actually, Laura, I really appreciate when we spoke a year ago because I was at the beginning of this journey and I really didn't see the connection so much around environmental racism, which is somewhat historical, and climate change, which is present and future. And in, in what we've come to after, you know, meeting our panel has met for six months is that, you know, the vulnerability of those communities. So it's intergenerational environmental trauma, right? So if your community is already exposed and unhealthy, then if there's a forest fire, if there's a rain event, if there's air pollution, it affects communities that have been marginalized much, much more. And so the solar energy, the wind energy, the hydro energy, some of the climate change tools that are seen as very positive, we would like some of the communities that were affected by environmental racism to be at the top of the list. Okay, the panel's mandate was to find ways for the province to address environmental racism. And after you and I spoke, you chose seven other members of the panel. And I'm wondering what it's been like working with all of them. It's been great. Well, we, from the very beginning, we were all community advocates who realized that we're not the community and we don't speak for the community. And I think that's the first thing I was thinking about when I put the panel together was make sure you choose people who have credibility in community. We've found that in Nova Scotia is that certain panels have been, and committees have been publicized and, you know, the, the, the community's going, boo, we don't know them and da-da-da. So we didn't get that. We actually got a really positive response to the seven people that were on the panel. You're just about to deliver your report to the government. What kinds of things are you recommending? Yeah, a couple things. I will say that the first chapter, we were really important that we stated that this is not, what we've done over the last year is not community work. 
right? Bringing eight people together to sit around a table is not community work, and we're all very wary of, of that. So we have a disclaimer at the front, an introduction of all the panel members, what were the limitations of us doing this work, and what work we actually got done. Then, more importantly, the next couple of chapters, there's one that deals with historic storytelling, In the African Nova Scotian and Indigenous communities, storytelling is huge. And when we heard some stories from community that honestly, Laura, brought tears to my eyes when when you hear some of the the situations that people are in that they're stuck in. So to hear Louise DeLisle from Shelburne talk about growing up in a town where a majority of the older men are dead. And it's a town of of widows, of, of women that survived husbands who got cancer. It's a town that had a dump in it that had industrial waste, military waste, had waste from the hospital, just things that were just heinous. And so hearing those stories, we felt that it's important that we have a chapter about the story. And it also links to our mandate of truth and reconciliation. And you can't have reconciliation unless you tell the truth. And so the truth is that these things have happened to communities in Pictou, in Guysboro, in Cape Breton, in Shelburne, in Africville and right here in Halifax, these are real evidence of environmental racism. So that's one chapter. There's a chapter that has to do with community engagement, which is what I specialize in myself. And we just wanted to give the government a strategic playbook on a way to authentically connect with community, not consult. We just want them to build a relationship with the community where the community trusts them and is able to tell them their stories of environmental racism. And then there's two chapters that are more government-based, which are pretty important, legislation and regulations. We feel that a lot of the protections that weren't there for community was because a municipality would say that it's a provincial responsibility, the province would say it's a federal responsibility, and as that rhetoric bounced around, communities would get stuck in a toxic situation for 10 years, 15 years, 20 years. So we do have a chapter that deals with some of the ways that we can amend, create, adopt, and better utilize some of the legislation. And then finally, we have a chapter that is connected to the three Ps, which we kind of coined as programs, processes, and protocols. These are kind of low-hanging fruit. Like, there's already programs that exist that have to do with climate change and green energy. And we would like some of these programs that are already existing to be applied to communities. Um, Can you sort of zero in on um, what advice you're giving when it comes to protecting communities from the impacts of climate change? You have to recognize that environmental racism exists first. And once you do that, then you can start to talk to community and see what they need. I do think that the popularity and the, the necessary trending of climate change initiatives have to be linked to this environmental racism lens of which communities really need this protection. Every community needs it, don't get me wrong, but there's some that need it more than others because they've been left vulnerable because of the past. As we're bringing in climate change initiatives and programs, we want those communities to be very out front as far as these are communities we need to help. Okay, so that you've got the, you'll hand in the report. I'm, I know it's your dearest wish that it actually be acted upon and not sit on a shelf somewhere. How yes. can politicians be actually held accountable? Is there anything that you're suggesting along that line to, to make sure they really actually do listen and act on it? I think you have to put timelines and accountability markers. And so we would like to, we would definitely have some checkpoints and some following up with community and some definite times and dates that we want the government 
to look at our recommendations. We're going to frame them as, you know, short-term recommendations that could be done now, midterm uh, recommendations that may take a year or so, and then longer-term recommendations. And so we will have accountability points for all three of those phases. And I imagine you'll be a voice being heard if, if those de- if their own if those deadlines aren't met. Well, not me particularly. I, I mean, as I said on our last time together, it's very important that the community feels like this works for them. So, a lot of our recommendations are to involve more than just the eight people. And to be a matter of fact, on this dream team of people that are on the panel, I've got the weakest skills as far as <laughs> environmental racism is concerned. I mean, my specialty is education and community engagement. So I can see myself kind of backing up and allowing other people to come forward. I think I've done my job to get it started. I'm almost like, you know, in a marathon runners, you get the guy, the person that runs fast at the beginning to set the pace and then they just stop running. I think I'm the pace setter. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, that actually leads me really well into the next question, which is how has leading the panel affected you and how you're moving forward in your own life. Oh, greatly. I've, um, you know, I'm a learner at heart. And so when I sit around and I've spent a year around this table that's discussing the environment and climate change, and I'll be honest, Laura, climate change has been on my radar, but there's been other things that I would say were on the front burner. Well, for me, it was on the front burner um, for a year of my life. And I would say that me now seeing climate change in a much clearer form. So we had scientists talk to us. We had healthcare professionals talk to us. We had so many experts talk to us that I feel like I was privy to this incredible knowledge about how serious this is. The climate, which seems like something abstract, has real effects on real people in real communities. Right. So I think that's what I learned the most is when we were hearing from people around environmental racism and their their fear of what's going to happen to their communities, to their houses, to their drinking water. It, it, it became very clear to me that there's some real urgency to this climate change issue. Augie Jones, thank you so much for your time. Laura, thank you so much. And I uh, appreciate a chance to represent Nova Scotia and talk about this. And Augie is delivering the panel's report to the Nova Scotia government this week. We'll be keeping an eye out to see what actions come as a result. Twenty twenty three saw a record breaking wildfire season ravage many parts of Canada. In Alberta, more than thirty eight thousand people were forced to evacuate their homes. Margaret Capo from Sturgeon Lake Cree Nation Treaty Eight Territory was one of them. I spoke with her in June and at that point she'd been out of her home for six weeks. I thought, Oh, it'll be just a temporary thing and I'll be able to go home. And I was not able to go home yet. And it it's like Kind of you go to this place of utter, is, how is this my life today? Every day or every other day still, it's still not totally sinking in. This is the way, the way it is now for me here. Now, six months after that conversation, Margaret is with me again. Welcome back, Margaret. Hi, thank you for having me. So how are things now? Uh, there's no change, uh, very little movement. 
as happened, although I'm happy to say, as of yesterday, it seems things are going to start moving for me in January. That's great, but are you telling me that you're still out of your house? It's been seven months. Yes, I'm still out of my house. I'm still in the hotel. I'm, I'm just wondering, living in a hotel for that long, how are you holding up? You know, I'm on a roller coaster. Some days I'm doing okay because I mostly sleep there. Uh, and and so and then I have to go to that place of gratitude also that I have warmth, I have water, heat, you know, all these things that are basic human needs. But mentally, I struggle emotionally, like in dips, ups and downs. I'm sure. So let's go back to to what's been happening since we spoke to you. When we spoke in June, you traveled back to your home and described what you saw as similar to the fictional realm of mortar, desolate, barren, and black. And I'm wondering, since then, have you been back? Yeah, I go to the house every few days. I try everything to deal with the toxic smell in there. So let, let's just remind listeners, your house wasn't actually burned by the fires. It, it was damaged by flood water. And that's because yes. after the wildfires came the rain, lots of it. And we were actually curious about this phenomenon. And we found out that there's research in the U.S. that climate change increases the risk of extreme rainfall following wildfires. So, Margaret, how damaging was that rain in your community? There was several other people uh, similarly to me that had you know, flood damage. It reminded me of being in the residential school. When I was in the residential school, I lived probably two blocks, two city blocks maybe uh, from the residential school where my house was. And I could see it almost from the mission, the residential school, I couldn't go home. And I feel like that because I go there, I could see my house standing, but I can't go to it. I can't go sleep there. I can't anything, right? And there are other people who has expressed a similar uh, sentiment talking to me about what they feel. And, and oh, and before I go on, I, I, I'm feeling a very emotional um, today or just in general, um, one of my elders um, who I, who would join me in circles, who I was in the hotel with, whose house had burnt, well, she passed away on the weekend, and that's having a tremendous impact on me. Oh, Margaret, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry for that loss. I'm so sorry for the for the triggers for your memory. This must be a very difficult time. Yes, thank you. Are you okay to keep talking? Yes. Okay. I need to talk because she would want me to keep talking. Okay. Um, so your home, they did try to, to fix the problems, but, but you talked about something toxic. So... What exactly is causing the delay in you returning home? Well, for one thing, it, it's, it's almost like my issue was not a priority at all 
it seems only the people who burnt were the focus. And somehow my issue was dealt with differently, utterly differently. I think one of the things that I also wanted to speak on was the lack of preparedness. Because I know for us, we are not, we're not prepared. And while what happened to me is very awful, I was left there and, you know, kind of just hanging on and trying to make my way for this past months. I also understand on, on a level where we never have enough resources to help us. Um, but I would invite that for the general populace too, that there's some more preparedness because it will affect not only Indigenous people, but everybody. Well, of course, as, as global warming becomes more severe, there are expectations that there will be more incidences like this. But but I'm wondering, Margaret, in your particular case, how would you have liked your situation to be handled? So I would have I would like it if someone had took the time and came and said, "Oh, Margaret, your house flooded." I sat with me actually and talked to me. But but who's who's responsi- uh, whose responsibility is that? Is it is it your nation or the province? Yes, or? yes, it is. And and, so, and this is all happening even though you're an elder in the community and, yes, that, and that usually and, means and you should be treated. And that whole thing is all a sham because because subsequent to that I decided to find my own health inspector because nobody had inspected my home all these months that I've been complaining. So is that is and, that is that going to happen now? Yes. And I'm going to keep pushing. What what do you think's made a difference to this action finally happening? What changed? I I think it was just a matter of who I ended up calling now. You know, they hired somebody to be a, a person in charge of the whole wildfire file, but he wasn't helpful to me. Is it, does so it, is I it, went do over his it, head and I went and talked to somebody else. Do you think it's because they've got you in a box that you're not a, a fire victim, so you're not treated the same as people whose houses were burned by fire? Yes, that seems to be what, you know, but I'm still a fire victim. And I think they finally got that through from yesterday talking to them. Margaret, back when we spoke in June, you said you really didn't think of yourself as an environmentalist or a climate activist. I'm wondering whether your perspective has changed on that. Well, I I guess, you know, when I think about activism, I think about it in a different way. Um, But I think, you know, I am an environmental activist. activist or whatever, you know, even by virtue of talking to you and sharing my story and my reality and how climate, uh, the changing climate is affecting me right up to this moment. And I'm going to keep telling my story and sharing what I can. Well, Margaret, I'm so glad that you shared your story with us. Um, I'm keeping my fingers crossed that you get home really soon. Will you let us know when you actually make it home? Yes, I sure will. Okay, Margaret, take good care of yourself, okay? Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.
We asked the Sturgeon Lake Cree Nation for its response to Margaret's concerns about how the flood damage to her home has been handled. The nation's chief administrative officer, Dion Napio, said in an email that there have been, quote, multiple visits to all the impacted homes to investigate what repairs and remediation is required, and this typically includes testing for air quality. The statement also says, quote, Our team has been working extensively with all impacted members to ensure their homes are safe and that they can return as soon as possible. This applies to those displaced by flooding and those displaced by fire. There is no preference for one over the other, end quote. The nation says 49 people have still not been able to return to their homes on reserve. And just another quick update on a different wildfire story. Paper or plastic? Oh, I forgot my own bags. Um, plastic. No, wait, paper. Hang on, which one's better? I don't know. Don't stress, Neil. The podcast Living Planet is here to help. We know you want to do what's right for the planet, but you're busy and you have to make a thousand small decisions every day. So we endeavor to answer what's better. Cotton or polyester? Tea or coffee? For answers to these environmental conundrums and your questions, subscribe to Living Planet wherever you listen to podcasts. There's some good news for the people of Lytton, B.C., That's the village that burned to the ground in 2021 during a deadly heat dome. Two people died. But now, two and a half years later, the first building permit has been issued and construction is underway. The mayor says people are feeling more optimistic about the future. I'm Laura Lynch, and you're listening to What on Earth, where we bring you a world of climate solutions. And today we're hearing from people who have been on the show before because they're bringing us updates on the climate action they've been working on. And one of the stories we brought you in early 2023 got a lot of listener response. What on Earth's Rachel Sanders has more on this. Hi, Rachel. Hey, Laura. Yeah, back in January, we heard from Heather Miller and Donald Wright. They're political science professors at the University of New Brunswick. And Heather had just started teaching a new course called Arts First, Climate and Environment in Humanities and Social Sciences. That course is now mandatory for all arts students at UNB. So if you want an arts degree from UNB, you have to take this course. And Heather and Donald think it could be the first time a climate course is required for all students in a Canadian university faculty. Donald also teaches his own climate course, The Politics of Climate Change. And at the end of the interview, if you'll remember, he offered to share his syllabus with any educator who wants to tackle the subject in their own classroom. I do remember, and I remember that a lot of people took him up on his offer. They really did, yeah. I called Donald up a few days ago for a little update. I think in total there was 80-some-odd emails that Heather and I received. And I like to think I responded to everyone, but if there's someone out there that I missed, feel free to fire off an email, and I promise you I will email back. I was thrilled, and I struck up quite a correspondence with a handful of people. Boy, oh boy, he's got it coming to him if he's inviting more emails, but it is great to hear about those kinds of connections happening. It really is, yeah. Those emails came from all across Canada, from Victoria to Newfoundland, and a couple even came from further afield, one from Uganda, one from Tanzania. Literally, people from elementary level, high school teachers, college professors, university professors, graduate students, a couple of graduate students reached out and go, oh my God, how do I go about doing this? I think this would be really great to incorporate into my teaching portfolio. 
I go forward? And I said, absolutely. Here's a couple of resources. Here's a couple of books. The best thing to do is start listening to podcasts. There are some great climate pods out there. There are some great climate pods out there. In fact, I think I've heard of one called What on Earth? That is a good one. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, but Donald says all this response has made a difference in his own work, too. It's re-energized me. It's just told me, okay, I'm doing something that's worthwhile. It gives people a measure of hope that they can have this conversation in their classrooms, that they can do something about the climate crisis. You don't have to create a carbon capture storage unit and solve the carbon crisis tomorrow, but you can generate those conversations with young people. And when they go out into the workforce, they will be changing their supply chains. They'll be changing their practices. They'll be going into public health and dealing with heat emergencies, with smoke emergencies. And I do remember him talking about how important he thinks it is for university students in all fields to learn about the subject. That's right. And so to help push this field of education forward, Donald has embarked on a new project. A colleague and I have submitted a book proposal to a publisher for an introductory textbook in climate politics. To the best of my knowledge, one doesn't exist on the market. So fingers crossed. And again, it's in part generated by my appearing on your show because the response that you received and I received directly was just astounding. There are a ton of educators out there who want to teach climate change. And Donald has a vision for what could be next when it comes to climate education in universities. My hope is that at some point, UNB and other universities will develop a standalone climate course that all undergraduate students have to take. And it could be team taught between engineers, scientists, social scientists, even humanists. If we're going to be creative and solutions-oriented going forward, you have to have a measure of understanding of the world you're about to enter, the workforce you're about to enter. I tell my students, it doesn't matter whether you go into retail, restaurant work, tourism, law, engineering, medicine, nursing, every single profession is going to have to work within the climate crisis. And journalism as well. That's right. <laughs> Thanks for bringing us the update, Rachel. Thanks, Laura. And if you want to hear the full interview with Donald and his colleague, we aired it on last week's show. Just check out the What on Earth podcast feed. So that's what's happening with university students. Now let's hear from some of the youngest students we've talked to about climate change on this show. I think that it's very important to know because if we don't do anything about this, then it's going to be like a worse world than what we've seen over the years. And we need people to know now so that they can do something about it. I was more on the worried side. Not like super duper worried, but like still worried. I would like to have a family and then like, What's going to be, what's their daily lives going to be? What's like their children's daily lives going to be like generations to come? So, John, do you remember those two? I sure do. Kate and Abby. <laughs> and uh, they were so eloquent in the way they, they spoke about their feelings around climate change. What do you remember about um, being in the classroom with them? Just the sense of students having some anxiety around thinking about and talking about climate change, but then the feeling of hope that came through when they uh, when they started to take action, even little actions that they could complete within a week, uh, and that was palpable. Okay, I want listeners to get a little more clued in here. Those kids are Cade Steger and Abby Ponzak, and they're grade six students in Medicine Hat, Alberta. And John, you taught them about climate change and climate solutions last March. Before we go on, though, John, can you introduce yourself to our listeners? 
Sure, I'm John Whidden, and I've been a teacher for many years. And in the recent years, I've moved toward educating with Canadian Parks and Wilderness here in Medicine Hat in southern Alberta. And um, in my teaching experience in the classroom, uh, out in the field with kids with CPAWS, I've just been noticing that there's a bit of a fear, anxiety around climate change. And so a couple of years ago, I thought, what could I do about that to help students with that? And so I thought, well, why not create a program that helps deal with it? So that's the direction I went. And here we are, John Whitten. Welcome back to What on Earth. Hello. Oh, thank you. So Kate and Abby were two of the students in the classroom where you piloted an educational program that you created, and we heard from them and you, as I said, back in the spring. Before we get to the update that you're going to share with us, remind us what the kids learned in the program. Sure. If I could go back, Laura, just to how it came about, which was me diving into a pile of research, including meeting with youth, parents, educators, First Nations elders, scientists, and uh, I dug through several studies that all revealed that, yeah, sure, many youth are indeed feeling what's been called climate anxiety. So that led me to develop this particular program, which was focused at the grade 5-6 level. And uh, I did three pilots of this where I worked with students over the course of five days. They learned about the science and the facts around climate change. And then we shifted to empowerment through little steps that they could take. And this culminated in students taking action that could be completed in a very short time period. So we wrapped up by sharing and celebrating those actions. Last time we spoke, you said you wanted to find a way to scale up the program so teachers could actually deliver it in their own classrooms. And you are back today with news about that. So what's next? Right. So what we've done is uh, created a series of lesson plans. I say, as a teacher, bulletproof lesson plans, meaning, you know, you're not going to have a lot of problems and questions with them. You can really follow these lesson plans or you can branch off if you like as a teacher. And those will be available as PDFs for teachers to download for free through the Canadian Parks and Wilderness Southern Alberta website. And uh, that'll be about mid to late January when those are available. There's also a course that's going to be available in the spring through the very cool Changemakers website. It's actually, I should say, wearechangemakers.ca. That's another CPAWS initiative. And it's uh, it's just a community hub. So you'd register for free. And then when you go into that uh, Changemakers website, there'll be a course section and it'll be available as a course uh, for anyone to take. Teachers could use that for their students or any member of society could do that. And the one I'm really excited about is a podcast, and that's going to be where youth can share what they are doing to mitigate climate change, creating hope through stories of stepping stone solutions. Wow, that is a lot. Congratulations. Well, thanks. I've been talking with a lot of youth about the podcast, and there's a lot of excitement around that. You know, another part of the research I looked at from Galway and Field said uh, about two-thirds of young Canadians are saying they either don't talk to others about climate change or they feel dismissed or ignored when they do. And I, in my experience, I would add there's kind of climate blinders that go on some students when they talk about it. You know, if I don't face it, I can ignore it and go on. The study went on to say this silence needs to be broken by creating and offering a diversity of safe spaces for young people to talk about climate change and their feelings around it. And I'm hoping that this podcast can be exactly that. Can you maybe um, share a story or an example about how you've seen that happen in the work that you've done? A couple of the students uh, in Cade and Abby's group went to their school administration 
and sat down and chatted with them about what was happening already around the school in terms of climate change mitigation. And they found out that the school actually had a solar array on the roof that provided a lot of their power and found a little bit more about how that worked. And, you know, I think um, when I talked to those students at the end, there was just a sense of, okay, something's happening. And these little steps are not going to solve climate change on their own, but at least we're walking in the right direction and I can feel good about that. Cade and Abby, the, the students that we, your former students that we heard just a few minutes ago, are, are they going to be guests? Yes, oh, I just great. talked with their parents the other day and I, I thought this would be a nice segue from the program into the podcast is to, you know, explain a little bit about how the podcast came to be and then have Kate and Abby as my first couple of guests. So that would be very cool. That's great. Yeah, and you've been workshopping the podcast title with young people. Is there a name yet? Yes, actually. I surveyed many youth and some young at heart about this title. Lots of wonderful ideas that unfortunately were not chosen, including a great one from the Bow Valley Future Leaders Youth Council. That's an exciting group there. They said, how to eat an elephant. I thought, wow, that's, <laughs> that's great. When you think about it, that's a great title. It is. I don't know how marketable it would be, but uh, I, love, I love the title. But the most popular title overall was Climate Action Figures. And there's a couple of different ways of looking at what that means. So that's going to be what we go with, that's Climate great. Action Figures. I like that. That yeah. works. And like you said, you can read it different ways as in the people doing it. And it just makes sense, right? Yeah, exactly. I got it. And we've it. already set up uh, <laughs> set up Facebook page and Instagram. And uh, we've got a Gmail address that's just climateactionfigures, all one word, at gmail.com. So if you want to know when that podcast is going to start up, just send an email to me there and uh, I'll let you know when the podcast is rolling. You want to say that email one more time just to make sure people can get it? Sure. It's all one word and it's climateactionfigures at gmail.com. After you and I spoke last spring, you heard from a few people who wanted to know about the program. I'm wondering how those connections affected the way you've moved forward with the work. Yeah, it was uh, it was great to hear from folks that you connected me with through this interview. And I'm in touch with a number of people who have helped me develop this program, really sharp people who are thinking in the same direction, but have very different things that they're involved in. I've set up several meetings with those folks, been connected with some youth through that. And so I've had a, a number of avenues that have been open to me thanks to that initial interview. So thank you very much. Well, John Witten, congratulations again uh, as all of this gets up and running, and thank you for talking to me about it. Well, thank you very much for having me. If you want to get in touch with any of the educators we've heard from today, send us an email, earth at cbc.ca, and we'll pass your message along. Another update on a story we've been following. The Federal Court of Appeal has ruled that 15 young people can take the Canadian government to court for inaction against climate change. The group, representing seven provinces and one territory, filed the lawsuit four years ago. They claim they've been harmed by climate change and the federal government is failing to protect them under the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms. We spoke with one of the plaintiffs back in 2020. Here's what Hannah Edenshaw from Haida Gwaii off the coast of northern BC told us then. I'm worried about erosion. I'm worried about kind of like everything about Haida Gwaii is changing. And it's really, really scary. It's really scary, especially because, you know, we've already had to 
faced so much change and so much oppression and with climate change like impacting like the very like fabric of like everything about my way of life like the language like my right to clean air and water which is already being affected my culture and my history like the history of Haijiguai is so dependent on these on these places that are that are being affected by like disproportionate storms and like the threat of rising sea levels is your, it's, is your, it's such is, a scary time is your house falling into the sea the water like comes right up up past our porch and it like goes to like by the door of my room and it's really scary because it's just going to keep on you know getting worse every year well, that year, a lower court judge tossed out the lawsuit that Hannah and her fellow plaintiffs launched, saying it wasn't a matter for the courts. But now, three federal appeal court justices say the young people should be heard. Here's Chris Tolleson, the co-counsel for the plaintiffs, speaking about the appeal court decision. Well, it's a very big victory, I think. Um, certainly, you know, in terms of our rights under the Charter, it's a very significant case. It's a uh, a big victory for access to justice and certainly kudos to these 15 young people. But I also think it's a very important step in the fight uh, against this climate emergency. It's going to be the first case, the first national case to go to trial. Now, there are still more legal hurdles to clear. First, that the federal government may appeal this ruling to the Supreme Court of Canada. I come from Peru. I, uh, I was raised by people living modestly, indigenous people in the mountains near the jungle. So my grandmother was a wise woman and she lived until 103 years old and she lived very sustainable. Then I come to Canada. I continue my studies in, uh, in environment and I see that, that our legislation is not pollution prevention, it's pollution abatement. So we are legalizing pollution and we are accepting pollution and this is what brought us to this point where we are. We have polluted our atmosphere. And uh, when you have children and grandchildren, well, I just have to imagine my, my three little grandchildren and I just say, you know, for them and uh, for our generation, their generation, uh, we have to do something. And we know we have, we have the technology, we have the knowledge, we have the money. So why, why is that we are not moving in that direction at the speed that we need? That is Independent Senator Rosa Galvez of Quebec. We spoke with her when she introduced a private member's bill in Canada's Senate called the Climate Aligned Finance Act. The idea is to force banks and other federally regulated financial institutions to make sure their investments and loans actually help the climate, not hurt it. Senator Galvez tabled the legislation over a year ago, and then nothing happened until just a few weeks ago when the bill came before a Senate committee hearing. We caught up with Senator Galvez, and I started by asking her why she thinks regulating the financial sector is so important to our climate future. The financial sector right now is facing, you know, a double uh, sore risk. On one hand, the extreme weather events uh, are destroying infrastructure before the end of their lifetime. Insurance are deserting these places. Everybody 
else in the world, other jurisdictions are moving with sustainable finances and are aligning with climate commitments. And so our industry will be penalized because we won't be able to compete with these jurisdictions, Europe or United States. The financial sector encompasses the pension plans, the banks and the insurance. They are massively still investing in fossil fuels. All of this is creating risk that is materializing and is putting in danger our financial sector. At the most recent Senate committee hearing, the superintendent of the Office of Financial Institutions downplayed the need for Senator Galvez's bill. Peter Rutledge says the office's mandate already gives it the tools to regulate financial institutions so they manage climate risks responsibly. But Senator Galvez says it's not enough for the office to have banks, insurance companies and pension plans disclose their emissions. They also need to be held accountable, she says, for reducing emissions. So I want a transition plan coming from every single sector saying uh, based on science and, and, and based on this existing technology, this is my plan that I'm going to attain every year in order to attain by 2050 uh, net zero. Now, the senator says there are a number of politicians in the Senate and the House of Commons who support her bill. But it's been a tougher sell when it comes to financial institutions themselves. After all, Canada's top five banks are among the 20 largest funders of fossil fuels globally. Still, Senator Gavez believes banks and insurance companies will have no choice but to move away from polluting industries if they want to remain competitive during the energy transition. Even though we don't know where and what form it will take next year, you and me and everybody knows that uh, an extreme or several extreme weather events are going to happen next year. And, the, um, and we don't want to, to see what is happening in California or in Hawaii, where insurance go away and or the premiums are inaccessible. The financial sector needs stability for investors to come. What happens if tomorrow the government says we stop the subsidies to the oil and gas, which are in the billions per year? What happens if we follow what the International Energy Agency is saying, that no new oil and gas project and the, all the oil and gas must stay in the ground? What happens if, you know, banks start saying, well, I cannot lend you more money or invest more money in your production, and I cannot also base it on the, on the oil that you have underground because things are changing. And so... We need to produce a new type of economy with clean jobs in a just transition that will make us move economically. And for that, we have to really innovate and and be creative. And when it comes to the odds that her bill will become law? I would say by now 50-50. At the beginning, it was just to raise the, uh, the conversation, put it on the table. But now with all the support that I have received from the members at the other house uh, by the experts. That is, you know, very, very um, encouraging. And we'll continue to follow the progress of the bill. That is Independent Senator Rosa Galvez. Well, 2023 is on track to break a number of climate-related records. It hasn't been an easy one for many people in Canada and around the world. So... The What on Earth team wanted to take a moment to round up some climate wins from the past year. 
We have five stories lined up. And joining us with story number one is what on earth's queen of climate chats, Rachel Sanders. Hi. Hey, Laura. Yeah, you mentioned some grim climate records being broken in 2023. And one of the things scientists warn about with rising global temperatures are something called climate tipping points. We risk reaching some points of no return within our lifetimes if countries don't rein in carbon pollution significantly. The University of Exeter released a report in 2023 outlining some of these dangers, but there is some good news that they point to as well. The report includes some (laughs) positive tipping points. I'm glad to hear it. Yeah, I'll share some examples from that report. It says that, quote, for many countries, the power sector has recently passed a tipping point in which the declining price of renewable electricity supply is reinforcing exponential growth with over 90 percent of new electricity generation in 2022 being solar and wind. That's great. Yeah, the report also says there are positive tipping points well underway in electric vehicle markets, too. The researchers did say that the world needs to reach more of these positive tipping points in other areas like transportation, food systems, and global financial systems, to name a few. Okay, well, maybe in a year from now, there'll be more positive tipping points for you to talk to us about. But thanks for now, Rachel. Thank you. And next we have Vivian Luck, who came on board with us just a few months ago, and she has our second story. Welcome, Vivian. How is it being with the group? Well... Considering you just brought in homemade Nanaimo bars <laughs> and refreshments for everyone at our lunch today, I would say everything is going swimmingly. Good. My bribery worked well. well why don't you I s- am easily bought. <laughs> why don't you tell us your story? Well, the story I'm going to share is one we recently talked about on the show. As you'll know, Laura, the UN climate talks were controversial this year. Climate advocates raised concerns over conflict of interest given the record number of fossil fuel lobbyists who were at the summit in Dubai. And of course, the COP28 president himself heads up the UAE's state-run oil company. But Catherine Abreu, who runs the nonprofit Destination Zero, she says there were two significant decisions that came out of those meetings. Number one, on the first day, something called the Loss and Damage Fund was adopted. Um, This is a fund that developing countries in particular have been pushing for for decades, where they're asking for support in order to address the losses and damages that they're already experiencing from the devastating impacts of climate change. So, and, you know, now here on the last day of COP, it's the first ever UN decision on climate change to actually name fossil fuels. Now, to be clear, Catherine pointed out there are lots of loopholes with some of the language, but she's still recognizing these as wins. And it's definitely a big moment in the history of the UN climate talks. Thanks, Vivian. You're welcome. And now we have another Catherine, Catherine Rolfson, the person who's actually really in charge around here. She joins me now with our third story. What do you have for us? Hey, Laura. So on the show, we've heard about the toll on the climate that natural gas has. In October 2023, the city of Montreal made a decision to ban gas connections in some new buildings. It comes into effect later in 2024, just for small buildings to start but it will expand to include larger buildings in 2025. So that ban includes gas-powered heating, hot water, and also stoves, among other things. And that's a story that we're going to keep tabs on. Thanks a lot, Catherine. You're welcome. So for our fourth story, our resident storyteller, Molly Siegel, joins me. What do you have for us, Molly? Hey, Laura. Well, we talk a lot about fossil fuel demand 
in Canada and globally. And in October, the International Energy Agency came out with its updated World Energy Outlook. There is a, a very legitimate reason to be hopeful about the global energy markets. That's Fatih Beryl, the International Energy Agency's executive director, speaking in a statement about the energy outlook that the IEA posted to YouTube. Beryl says that the global demand for coal, oil, and natural gas is now set to peak by the end of the decade. Beryl also says that by 2030, almost half of the electricity around the world is predicted to be from renewables. Very strong growth coming from solar wind and the others, the renewables, are pushing the fossil fuels out of the electricity generation uh, globally, slowly but surely. He also said there'll be a big increase in the number of electric vehicles on the roads, 10 times as many by the end of the decade as there are now, and way more heat pumps. And so these developments are contributing to the decrease in the demand for fossil fuels. And as we know, the combustion of coal, oil, and natural gas contributes the majority of the world's carbon pollution. He calls this benchmark a, quote, important turning point for energy markets. So from a climate change perspective, this news, I think, can be seen as a win. I agree with you. Thank you, Molly. You're welcome. And for our fifth and final story, what on earth is Danielle Piper, who knows how to find great stories where no one else is looking? She's here with me now. Danielle, what have you got for us? Hey, Laura. Early on the show, we heard about a Canadian climate lawsuit. Well, the story I have to share is another one from the courts. But this time, south of the border, in the United States. A group of youth climate activists won a lawsuit in Montana. This is the first of its kind in the U.S. and could be a landmark case. According to the Associated Press, the judge ruled in favor of the young activists. They said their right to a healthy environment was violated when Montana state agencies issued permits for fossil fuel developments, something they say the state did without considering the impact of those projects on climate change. District Court Judge Kathy Seeley wrote in the court ruling that, quote, Montana's emissions and climate change have been proven to be a substantial factor in causing climate impacts to Montana's environment and harm and injury. That is a really significant ruling and one that bears watching as well. Um, this has been great to have all of you guys in here giving us all a taste of what really are climate winds around the world. I'm sure there's more out there that we haven't touched on. If you've got something that you want to tell us about, send us an email, earth at cbc.ca. We'd be really interested to hear from you. And thank you, Danielle, and the entire What on Earth team. Bravo. And remember, you can listen to all our episodes on demand at CBC Listen, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, please leave us a review. Even better, tell a friend about us. That is all for now. The show was put together by Danielle Piper, Vivian Luck, Rachel Sanders, Molly Siegel, Matthias Wolfson, and Catherine Rolfson. I'm Laura Lynch. Happy New Year. Thank you for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.